Matthew 6 is where we're at, and we have been here for quite some time walking through uh, the model prayer, the disciples' prayer, the Lord's prayer, whatever you want to call it. And uh, we're approaching the end. We have this week and next week, and then the prayer will be ended, and then we'll put two weeks on the end of this series that we'll talk about prayer and fasting, and then we'll just talk generally about prayer and a few items here for a couple more weeks. So this is going to kind of push us all the way through the month of June, this prayer series. And I want you to uh, see the Lord's Prayer with me. We'll read it together and begin to tackle the last verse, verse number 13. Matthew 6, Jesus is speaking, and he says this to his disciples. Verse number 9, after this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This morning we're going to cover uh, the first chunk of verse number 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And as I've read and studied, there's probably no petition in the Lord's Prayer that's more debated or more opinions are given than probably on this one. And I want us to kind of develop a full understanding of temptation and what exactly Jesus is teaching his disciples and how we should in turn pray this petition to the Lord in our own prayer lives. Let's pray and then we'll dive right in. Uh, we have seen now for a number of weeks that this is a model prayer for us. This is a template of sorts that Jesus is giving his disciples and giving us on how we should pray and what the petitions of our hearts uh, should reflect as we approach the Lord in our own prayer lives. And this is a uh, prayer that should sort of stamp itself on, on our prayers and should mold and shape our own personal prayer lives as we discover uh, what Jesus is saying. It's not to say that we would say these words verbatim, although you could if you wanted to, but this is giving, here's what you should pray in the general sense of it. Here is a model. Here's something that you could follow. And Jesus, we learned in this last petition that we covered for a couple weeks, uh, he told us uh, to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And Jesus turns his attention from these sins that are in the past that we have committed and now more or less turns his attention to the future for sins and temptations that we would be spared from them uh, coming uh, down the pipe in, in the future. So here is what Jesus prays in a nutshell or tells us to pray. This petition is almost two-pronged. He says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And if I could put that in a terse way, essentially we would be praying Keep me out and get me out. That would be what Jesus is teaching us to petition the Father for, to keep me out and to get me out. So keep me out would be contained in this phrase, lead me not into temptation. Now, in order to understand this phrase, and there's a lot of misunderstanding that you could have about it, in order to understand it, you have to have a, a, a full, uh, healthy, uh, big picture of temptation in the Bible. You have to understand what, how the Bible presents temptation because oftentimes we think of temptation inaccurately or only partially when, when it comes to temptation. So here is, according to Schofield, this is how he defines temptation. He defined it in two ways. So the first way is this testing under trial, and this would be something that is an examination or is a proving of sorts, we're testing our mettle, it's a trial that comes our way, and that would be appropriate. But then there's also this a solicitation to do evil where I am enticed or I am somehow bidded to do evil. Now, both of those are, are accurate, and I would agree with Schofield. And 
in this solicitation to do evil, that actually comes from multiple facets. That comes from uh, devils or the devil himself, the Bible tells us. Uh, that also comes from uh, just the world around us, that this advertisement, or I see this, or this coworker, or somehow uh, I am tempted to do evil in that way, but it also comes from within. It comes from within our own flesh. And if I could outline temptation for you and put it kind of in, a, in an outline form, it would look like this. It would be temptation. Under that, you have a testing under trial. You also have the solicitation to do evil. And under solicitation, you have these different ways that we could be solicited to do evil. So I'm going to walk through these biblically because there's a lot to unpack there. And as we begin to understand what temptation is in the Bible, I think that this prayer or this petition will begin to open itself up and bloom and we'll know how we should be praying to the Father. So first is a, a testing under trial. So the big disconnect that most of us have with temptation is that we don't think of temptation or use that word in that way, testing under trial. We would generally just say, I'm in a storm or I'm in a test or I'm in a trial. But the majority of the times you see the word temptation or maybe the verb form tempt or tempted, the majority of the times you see that in the New Testament, it's used in that fashion. It's used in a fashion of a testing under trial, uh, generally understood to be from the hand of God, that I am being tested of sorts. And in order for us to understand this fully and maturely, we need to, we need to grasp this. So you'll find in the New Testament dozens of times where testing under trial is the case. You'll only find half a dozen or so times where you find temptation used as a solicitation to do evil. Now, in our modern vernacular, we just use temptation strictly as solicitation to do evil. But in the Bible, that's not the case. It's used oftentimes. I'm going to give you a few verses. I don't have time this morning for us to turn to all of them. We'll turn to a couple of them. But you can write these in, uh, in your margin or in your notes if, if that's your habit or on your bulletin or something. And you can maybe go back and look at them in your own time. But Acts 20, 19. Here are verses where temptation is used clearly as a testing under trial, where it's seen more physiologically than it is psychologically or spiritually. So Acts 20, 19, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations. So I'm serving the Lord with many temptations, and those temptations befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. What is it saying? It's saying these temptations were more at the hand of, of people, and this was more a physical temptation that they were trying to get at me than it was a psychological one. Galatians 4, ye know how through infirmity of the flesh, this is Paul talking, and he's going to say, look, you know I had an infirmity in my flesh, you know that I had a handicap, and he's going to call that handicap a temptation. So he says, through infirmity of the flesh, I preached the gospel unto you at first, and my temptation which was in my flesh, ye despised not, nor rejected, but ye received me as an angel of God, even as, as Christ. What is, what's Paul saying? Is he saying that the temptation in my flesh was some solicitation to do evil? No. He's saying that this was a, a testing or a trial or this, uh, this storm that the, the Lord was putting me through physically. Then he says this in verse number 15, if, when is then the blessedness ye spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes and had given them to me. Most people, scholars would say that this uh, temptation physically that Paul's going through was his eyesight, something was going on with his eyes. And he's saying, look, you would have given your own eyes to me, and I, I applaud you for that. But he's saying this temptation is it's not a solicitation to do evil. This temptation is it's a trial that I'm in. You find in the, in the Gospels, oftentimes, the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they'll present him with a question to try to trip him up. 
And oftentimes you find that the Gospels say that the Pharisees came to Jesus tempting him. What were those Pharisees doing? Were they, were they trying to get him to do evil? No, they were trying to, to prove him, to test him, to trip him up. You find in Peter, if you know about 1 Peter, Peter writes, and it's to people that are in extreme adversity and trials. And he says to them, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Hey, the temptations that are about you, they're, they're trials, they're testings, they're persecutions that have come your way. 1 Peter 4 Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. That which is to try you literally is which is to tempt you. You find a couple other places in John and in Corinthians where that word temptation is, is translated as proved or examined, as in examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. That is saying basically tempt yourselves, test yourselves, prove yourselves, give yourself an examination. So this biblically... More often than not, when you see the word temptation, understand it's talking about a trial or a test that you're going through, not some solicitation to do evil. However, there are times in our lives and in the Bible where temptation is rightly viewed as a solicitation to do evil, where we're enticed to do wrong, to be sucked into sin. And you find biblically that that comes through three different sources. So first you find that it comes uh, from devils. And I say devils plural because oftentimes we say our enemy is the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that's true, but the odd, understand the devil's not God, okay? The devil's not, uh, he's not all powerful, nor is he all present. So the devil can't be everywhere at the same time. So the odds of you actually facing the devil in your, in your lifetime is actually a pretty slim odd. More than likely, you will get some sort of lower mini or some sort of lower devil. It's, it's very unlikely that you will actually face the devil himself. Is it possible? Certainly it is. But we do see biblically that there is a spiritual warfare about us, and there is temptation that comes uh, from the devil himself or devils. You find this in the case of Adam and Eve, that they are tempted by the devil. You find this in the case of Jesus, where he fasts for 40 days, he's in the wilderness, and he is tempted of the devil. You find this in, uh, inside of uh, 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes and says that, uh, that he is writing to them, hoping to, to kind of solidify them and to strengthen them because he's worried that the tempter have tempted you. What's he, he's referring to the devil as the tempter. He's saying, I'm, I'm worried that you will face a temptation from him. So understand that this is real. However, that is, that you can only find a few cases in the New Testament where temptation is used in that manner. Generally speaking, we like to think of temptation exclusively as that, as the devil made me do it. Or there's a little angel over here, and there's a little devil over here, and they're play, playing tug-of-war with my heart and my mind, and I gave in, right? But that is, that is a, a very small portion of when temptation is used in the Bible. It's valid, but there's, there's not a devil behind every door. Sometimes it's the world. Sometimes it's your own, it's your own stinking sin nature and your own flesh. And we'll see that. You find uh, the world is also this, this source of a solicitation to do evil. You find this in the case of Lot in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. Peter writes, and he says this about Lot, which is a bit strange if you know the story of Lot. You wouldn't think of him as a good guy, but Peter refers to him as a righteous man. And he says in 2 Peter, For that righteous man, Lot, dwelling among them, dwelling among who? Sodom and Gomorrah, these people that were against righteousness, in seeing and hearing. He vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord uh, knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation. What is he saying? 
seeing that Paul or that uh, Lot living amongst these people, that he, what he allowed into his eye gates, what he allowed into his ear gates, what he allowed into his life, what he saw the people around him doing, that vexed his righteous soul it was a temptation. The next verse refers to it as it was a temptation that that kind of inclined him to do wrong. And this is a good lesson for us to learn, that the people that we choose to put within our orbit, the people in our workplace, our uh, neighbors, who we allow our, our children to hang out with, right? We're very careful about that, aren't we? Why? Because we understand that temptation could come their way based on who they're hanging around with. What we allow, not just uh, people, but what we allow into our homes by way of a media or by way of uh, different sources, that's, that's valid for us to understand and consider and ask ourselves, what am I allowing into my mind? What am I allowing into my heart? What am I allowing into my life? Because that can be a source of temptation for me. But beyond that is our flesh. So this is uh, several places in the Bible that you see this. You would see this in the Old Testament in the, in the story of Achan, where Achan just inside has this inclination to take the spoils because he wants them. But you find that our flesh, by and large, James writes about this, and he says that, by and large, this is the source of our temptation. If we really want to point the finger somewhere and play the blame game, we should point the finger at ourselves. And by and large, this is where it comes from. First Timothy, Paul writes, and he says to Timothy this, he said, They that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare. What is Paul saying? He's saying that that inward desire to have to have the money, to have the wealth, to make myself rich. This, this passage is bookended with godliness with contentment is great gain, and then the love of money is the root of all evil. He's saying those that make that their, their driver in life, that I want to get wealth and I want to accumulate for myself, he says, look, that is a, a temptation, and you're going to fall into a snare. That, that is, that's going to, it's, it's warring against yourself inside. James says this, and I want you to turn to James 1, because this is often where people have a disconnect with James 1 and Matthew 6, that Matthew 6 clearly says, Lord, lead us not into temptation, which tells us that he has the possibility to lead us into temptation. But some will look at James and say, well, I thought God didn't tempt people. I thought he couldn't be tempted. So we'll look at that together and, and hopefully develop an understanding of temptation. James 1, look in verse uh, number 12. The Bible says in James 1 verse 12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried he shall receive a crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Verse 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted, and you can't miss these two words because they're important, with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. There's parallelism there that he can't be tempted with evil, nor is he going to tempt you with evil. So what is James saying here? James is saying, look, when you're tempted, don't go blame shift on God. Don't point the finger at him and say, this is God's fault. You could also say, don't point the finger at the devil and say, this is entirely the devil's fault. James says, look, when you do that, don't. Don't, don't blame God when you're tempted. And he's going to continue verse number 14. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived... It brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. What is James saying? James is saying that much of your temptation, you have you to blame. You have your own, your own hang-ups and your own habits, your own desires that over the course of time, different sin patterns that you've adopted for yourself. The devil doesn't have to get at you. You're doing it to yourself. 
The world may not even have to get it. You may see that advertisement, but all it does is that shines a light on the desire and the, the lust that's in your own heart that you want to do that. And that lust, when you're enticed, it conceives, and all of a sudden the product of that is sin, and sin when it's done is death. And James says, look, understand that this is inside, that there's something deep inside of man that is a problem. This is what Paul writes in Romans 7. He says, I find a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law of my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? What's Paul saying? He's saying that inside of me I have these desires and these urges that are wrong and I want to shake it and I want to get rid of them and I, I, I fight it. I war against it, that my own flesh is tempting me to do wrong. There's this solicitation to do evil. So, you see in the Bible, can God lead us into temptation? Yes. And we are to pray that God would not lead us into temptation. But, can God tempt us with evil? No. Let me, let me share a verse with you. We're going to put this on the screen. Matthew 4, verse number 1. This is the temptation of Jesus. The Bible says clearly... And this is good for us to understand that when Jesus was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, then he's going to go into that temptation. What's happening? Jesus is being led by the hand of God into temptation. That's more than a physical trial. That's a solicitation to do evil. So is there, is there a disconnect? Does the Bible disagree with itself? No, it does not. Can God lead us into temptation? Yes. Can he actually tempt us to do evil? No. Let me illustrate. I have uh, two kids, uh, Brennan, who's three, and Willow, who is 10 months old. Our goal in parenting in the first year of our children's lives is pretty simple. We have two goals. Keep them alive and teach them that no means no. Those are, those are our two goals in the first two years. Keep them alive, and by the time they turn one, that they would understand no means no, and they'd be able to respond to that command. And that's, that's a big part of, part of the battle. If you're a new parent, that would, uh, it's, it's a helpful thing to establish. So we do this in, in a myriad of different ways, but sometimes what we'll do is we will put uh, a temptation of sorts in front of our children. Brennan has kind of grown beyond this, but Willow is right in the midst of this right now. So Willow, our daughter, she loves to chew on electric cords or iPhone charging cables, uh, computer cords, whatever, which is not a good habit, obviously, for a child to have. And we, we tell her no, that she can't do this. And so we're trying to establish that when we tell you that something is no, I don't care if it's, if it's the cord, I don't care if it's the toy that you were just playing with 10 minutes ago, I don't care if it's something that you've always played with, but that means no and that you don't touch it and you respond to that. So sometimes how we'll do that is we'll play a game of sorts or we'll put her into a temptation. That we'll put uh, multiple toys around her and she's allowed to play with any of them, but we'll pick one and we'll make that toy a no ma'am. And we'll say, Willow, no ma'am. It could be whatever, a little cell phone, a little rhinoceros, a, an actual cord that we'll put in front of her. It depends. We'll say, that's a no ma'am. We'll clearly four or five times, this is a no ma'am. No, no, no. Don't touch this. No, no, no. Don't touch this. And we'll put it down on the ground. And Willow's allowed to play with any of the toys, but if she touches that one, that's a no man. That incites a little maybe a pinch on the back of her leg or a little slap on the wrist. Some of you say, that's mean, that's cruel. I don't care if you think it's mean or cruel, it's effective. It works. <laughs> to try to help her. We're not abusing her. We're not, okay, we're, we're not hurting her, bruising her. 
But we do that to teacher gnomons, and she's, she's right now, she's in the midst of this, and she's getting that. What are we doing with her? And in essence, we're leading her into temptation. Why? Because I want her to do wrong? No. I want her to prove that she won't do wrong. We want her to learn to do right. That's the point of us leading her into that temptation and putting that in front of her and telling her that's a no, ma'am, is yes, we're leading her into, but we're not tempting her with evil. Tempting her with evil would be if I said, Willow, no, ma'am, no, ma'am, no, ma'am, no, ma'am, and then my wife came along and kind of sat down right next to Willow and said, Willow, touch that. Willow, chew on that cord. It'd be yummy. Do it, do it, do it, do it. Now that would be tempting her with evil. That would be encouraging her to do wrong. That would be encouraging her and soliciting her, enticing her to do something wrong. Now there's a difference. And the Bible is clear that God can and does at times lead us into temptation, but he does not tempt us with evil. There is a difference there. And so as we understand temptation, understand who God is and what, he, what the Bible clearly tells us he does and does not do. Also understand what temptation is. That sometimes it's a solicitation to evil, sometimes it's just a trial or a testing of our faith. So the question is, what then is Matthew 6, verse number 13 referring to? When we are to pray, lead us not into temptation. Am I praying, God, don't put me in a trial or a test or in a storm? Or am I praying, God, don't put me in a situation where I'll be enticed to do wrong? Now, I think the answer is both. But the, the clearer context would be more in line with enticement to do wrong. And that's because Jesus attaches to this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But it would be appropriate for us to, to pray either way. For us in our prayer lives to pray this, keep me out of, protect me from, shield me from temptation. Lord, spare me the invitations to do evil. There are people at work that have ill intentions and they would love nothing more than for me to do wrong and to see me crash and burn. And Lord, keep me from that. Spare me from that. Lord, I pray that you would guard my steps. I pray that you would guard my eyes. I pray that you would not allow things to come across my path today that would tempt me, that would entice me to do evil. Lord, I pray for my flesh. Lord, take the desires that you know I have and I know I have that war against me, that I struggle to overcome and change them. And Lord, lead me not into temptation. But beyond that, the physical side of this, it'd be very extremely appropriate for us to pray, Lord, physically protect my family. Lord, keep us out of that. Test, spare us from that. Lord, give us good health. Lord, protect, don't we pray for traveling mercies or things like that as we travel or we go? What are we saying, essentially? We're asking that we would not be allowed into temptation or into this trial or this test or this physical infirmity. And this is something that we are biblically commanded to pray. God, spare me. God, keep me out of that. I don't desire that. You say, well, wait a minute. Aren't, in the Bible, people get these, these trials and these tests and they're thankful for them. We're told in everything to give thanks. We're told that we have the fellowship of his sufferings. That as Jesus suffered, so too will, will we suffer. Aren't we supposed to be grateful for that? Aren't we supposed to see this as the hand from God? Isn't this supposed to be some sort of refiner's fire that purifies me and changes me and makes me a pure Christian and, and I have a closer walk with the Lord? Yes, 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 and yes. But it doesn't mean that we're gluttons for punishment. It doesn't mean that we walk around with a martyr complex wanting all the trials and all the testing and all the infirmity and all the temptation to be flooded upon us. Do you find that Jesus and Paul pray this way? 
What does Jesus pray in the garden? The night before, or the night he is betrayed, before he's crucified. What does he pray? Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, leave me not into temptation. He's saying, I don't, I don't desire this. I don't want this. If there's any way around this, I sure would appreciate it. I would enjoy not going through this. That's what Jesus is praying. Doesn't Paul pray the same thing? He says, I besought the Lord thrice that he would, that he would relieve me. What was that relief that he wanted? Some have tried to connect his physical infirmity and his eyesight to this. But Paul tells us what it is. So says, he besought the, th- the Lord thrice, three times, that he would relieve him. And what was the relief from? It was a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. It was a spiritual attack. It was a, it was a, a devil that apparently had been assigned to Paul. He says, I, I asked God three times, God, get me out of this. Leave me not to temptation. Get me away from this. Lord, relieve me of this. I, I want to be done with this. But he says, God's response to me was similar to Jesus in the garden. God's response was, my grace is sufficient for thee. So you see in the Bible that is very appropriate. Jesus, Paul, different people pray. God, leave me not into temptation. I don't want this. I don't desire this. However, beforehand, our will is resigned to the Father's. And beforehand, we understand that if he says no, or the trial still comes my way, or the financial difficulty still comes my way, or the physical infirmity still comes my way, then I trust. And I trust that he knows what he's doing. It's not that I want it, but I I say thank you, and I trust that, that God is in control and that he is going to give me what I need. This is what Jesus instructs his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, but he also instructs them in Luke 22. But when Jesus is praying in the garden, for that cup to be passed from him. If you remember the story, he leaves his disciples, the Bible says, a stone's throw away. So I'm not sure who's throwing the stone, you know, how far that was, but I would imagine maybe it's, uh, maybe it's I don't know, 70, 80 yards or so. And he leaves them there and he tells them to pray, and he goes and prays. And then what happens? Jesus comes back and what are they doing? Sleeping. And he gets frustrated. He says, guys, wake up. Come on. Can't you pray with me for an hour? And he goes back, and then he comes back again. They're sleeping again. He wakes them up again. The third, finally, the third time, he says, forget it. Sleep on. I, I don't even care anymore. But what had Jesus, Jesus had told them that night not just to pray, but he had told them what to pray. And he had specifically given them a request, guys, here's what I want you to pray with me with. Here it is, Luke 22. We'll put it on the screen for you. When he was at that place, which is Gethsemane, he said to them, pray that she enter not into temptation. And you find a few verses where he comes, he's frustrated, he comes, he's frustrated. And then finally he says the last time to them, verse number 46, why sleep ye? Rise and pray lest ye enter into temptation. What is Jesus doing? He's apparently what he taught them in Matthew 6 was something that they lived out on a day-to-day basis. Apparently this was part of their prayer lives regularly. And Jesus sees a direct correlation between the temptation that befalls us and the prayer lives that we have. And he says that there is a connect between what enters into our lives or doesn't enter into our lives and our prayer and our asking God, Lord, this is, this is how I would put it in a very terse way, Lord, physically and spiritually protect me. Physically and spiritually protect my family. Physically and spiritually protect our church. This is God, lead us not into temptation. God, we don't, we don't desire this. We know that this is from your hand. So we ask you, Lord, keep me out. Keep me out. But then there's a second part, get me out. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Say, what does that evil mean? Well, it means sin. It means evil in the world. It also means just evil at the hand of malevolent creatures, devils. 
And in case there's someone in the room who is uh, still clinging to a few doubts that uh, the devils or the devil doesn't exist, uh, let me just assure you, they do and he does. And that's a lesson that you would rather learn in the classroom than on a field trip. This is something that is real. The Bible is abundantly clear with this. That we are, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers, the Bible says. We have an adversary who walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We're instructed as Christians to be sober and to be vigilant and to walk circumspectly. Why? Because of our enemy. So we see all through Scripture that there is this enemy and that this enemy is powerful and that we should, we should be very careful. Spurgeon, in his book, uh, Prayer and Spiritual Warfare, this is what he said about our enemy, and he put it in a, in a great way, as Spurgeon often does. Our arch enemy finds a weak place in the walls of our castles. He takes care to, uh, to plant his battering ram and begin his siege. You may conceal your infirmity even from your dearest friend, but you will not conceal it from your worst enemy. He has lynx eyes and detects in a moment the weak point in your armor. He goes about with a match, and though you may think you have covered all the gunpowder of your heart, he knows how to find a crack and put his match through. Much mischief will he do unless eternal mercy prevents. What's Spurgeon saying? He's saying, you have an enemy, you better beware, and you better hope and pray for God to spare you. You better pray and depend on his mercy and his grace for you to be able to overcome him. Now, in case, in case a, a roaring lion seems scary, and it probably does, have a, a full biblical understanding of the devil. Spiritual warfare is not a tug-of-war between the devil and God. It's not this horizontal plane where God's pulling some and the devil's pulling some and, and God gets an inch and the devil gets an inch. Spiritual warfare is vertical. It's a chain of command. God's the general. The devil's a little private. And everything has to be filtered through him. And God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful and he is in control of that. You see this in the story of Job. The devil is only allowed what God allows into his life. So, so understand that Jesus Christ has authority, all authority, in heaven and in earth. And that should encourage us and that should help us. But also understand that we needed to tap into that. That we're not going to fight the devil in our own power. This is, this is the prayer here. This is the get me out. This is the deliver me from evil. This is a, it has a heartbeat of humility. It has a heartbeat of dependency that I need to depend upon the Lord. And Lord, the only re reason that I would pray this or that you would pray this is if we can't deliver ourselves, right? This is something that we understand. God, you deliver me. God, I need your power. I need your strength. I need your resources. God, I can't spiritually do this on my own. I can't pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I can't overcome the devil. I can't overcome the world. I can't overcome myself on my own. I can't get free from the, the chains of sin that are, that are binding me. And how many of us in the room have tried to do this on, on our own? And haven't we failed and failed and failed and failed? It's been an exercise in futility. It's a prayer of dependency and humility that God... I need you to deliver me. God, I need you to help me. God, I trust in you to do this. This is what we depend on the Lord for our salvation, certainly. That we come 100% Jesus, 0% us. God, I depend on you. I trust in you. Jesus Christ, I put my faith in you to deliver me from sin and the penalty from sin and death and hell, and I depend on you for that. But we don't leave it there and then start to walk the Christian life all by ourselves. 
We continue to depend and to trust and to tap into his strength and his resources. This is what the Galatians, those that are in the region of Galatia, do. They come to the Lord by faith and then try to walk life by themselves. And Paul gets real irritated with them. He says in Galatians 3.1, he starts this, this portion and he kind of slaps them in the face just to get the, get the ball rolling. He says, oh foolish Galatians. He starts off with, you, you fools. He says this, who hath bewitched you? That ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Look, I put Jesus right there in front of you. You saw him. Who tricked you, you fools? What's, what's Paul mean? Well, he's going to tell us what he means. He gives him a rhetorical question in verse 2. This only would I learn of you. Look, I want to know one thing, guys. Received you the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? How'd you, how'd you get saved? How were you born again by the Spirit? How'd that happen? You do that? Works of the law? You, you figure that out on your own? Or was that by your faith in Jesus Christ? And Paul knows the answer to the question, and they know the answer to the question. It was by faith. So then he says, verse number three, Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? What is Paul saying? He's saying, you started your Christian life through faith in Jesus Christ, don't think you're going to continue any other way. You're not going to be able to do this yourself. He says, look, someone has tricked you and tried to tell you that you can do this on your own through the works of the flesh, through the law, that you need to follow this rule book, you need to do that. He says, it's crazy. It's faith in Jesus Christ. That is what should, that sh- was what should move you. And he says, look, you're, you're not a super Christian. And I'm not a super Christian. And you're not a super Christian. That you're not going to be able to do this on your own. It's going to be, God, get me out. God, deliver me. God, help me. God, would you give me the strength and the resources that I need? And all through the New Testament, you find verses where people are delivered, but they constantly attach it to prayer and God. Now, I was delivered because of prayer and because of God. I'll give you a few verses. You can write them in your margins. I'll rattle them off to you quickly. 2 Corinthians 1. We should not, and this is, this is as clear as it could possibly be. This would be enough, just this verse. We should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raises the dead. Who, God, delivered us from so great a death, past, and doth deliver, present, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us future. It says, look, don't trust in you. Trust in God, who did deliver, is delivering, will deliver. That's who you need to trust in. Second Thessalonians 3. Finally, brethren, pray for us. What, what should we pray for? What does Paul want prayer for? That the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as as with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. He says, look, I covet your prayers that God would deliver us from people who are against us, from these temptations or trials that could befall us. Colossians 1, speaking of God, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. 1 Thessalonians 1, which delivered us, Jesus, from the wrath to come. 2 Timothy 3, uh, persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Second Peter 2, the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations. This is all through the Bible. You see that it's God that's delivering. It's his power. He gets the glory. He gets the credit. He gets the praise. Not us. Not our own strength. Not our own wits. But he does it. 
And there is this dependency that we should have in our prayer lives of, Lord, keep me out. I don't want it, but Lord, get me out. Loose those chains of sin. Lord, give me victory. Lord, help me to walk in faith. God, help me not to be tempted. But when I am and when I fall down, Lord, I, I trust in you. I need your help. And let me get very practical for a moment. We'll bring this plane in for a landing. This is the last petition of the Lord's Prayer. And I think it's purposeful. It's put here after we've already walked through the prayer sequence. You say, well, what have we walked through? We've walked through Father, understanding Father in heaven, the relationship and the majesty coupled together. Hallowed be thy name. Lord, sanctify your name. Lord, make it great. In my life, in my family, in my church, Lord, sanctify your name. May thy kingdom come. God, I look forward to your kingdom. Bring it on. Where all will be made right. Where this, this flesh that I wrestle against will be, will be gone and done. May thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I look forward to that day when you pervade all. But until then, Lord, rule and reign in my heart. God, I submit to you. May your will be done in my life. Be in control of me. Be in control of my home. And it moves into give us this day our daily bread. Father, here's, here's my needs. God, I, I know that everything I've been given is from your hand. I trust that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And I know that, but Lord, I'm asking you, I, I need it, I need it. It's, it's from you, I'm trusting you, give it to me. But Lord, spiritually even, give me, I need your wisdom. I need your help. God, I can't do this without you. Lord, give us day our, our daily bread. Then forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. God, I've, man, here, I think back in the last day, I messed up there. Man, I said that and, and this and that. And Lord, forgive me. Clean me up, Lord. I, I lay it on the table. I want to walk away from it. Forgive me my debts. And I put them in front of you and restore this relationship with me. And then, Lord, lead me not into temptation. Spare me from the future. I don't, want, I don't want the trial. I don't want the test. I don't want the temptation. I don't want them to get after me. Lord, spare me from that. Lord, would you please keep me from it and then get me out. You say, why is it important to get me out is at the end? Because you should have already laid it all on the table and said, God, I surrender to you. God, your will be done. God, here's the sin of my life. Take care of it. If you go to get me out and deliver me, but you haven't put it all on the table, it ain't going to work. The devil feasts on your leftovers. You want to give God 95% and keep five back for yourself? He will have a heyday on that 5%. It's at the end of this prayer that you, that you pray this. Because your heart should have already come in tune with God's. And you should have already said, Lord, it's all there. I want your will to be done. I want you to clean me. I, I want to I seek you first. I want your name to be made great. It's all about you. That should have already happened. And it's then and only then with a complete and utter dependency on God, wholeheartedly trusting that I can pray, Lord, get me out of this. Lord, deliver me from this. I'll say this in closing. I've tried to do every sermon in the Lord's Prayer this way is to help you understand a fuller picture of who God is in light of the petition in the Lord's Prayer. So in light of temptation, understand three things about God, and I'll give them to you in five minutes or less. First of all, you have a God and you have a Savior who is not indifferent to your temptation and your suffering. And I speak of that both in the solicitation of the evil sense and in the trials that you go through since. You have a Savior who does not keep you at arm's length and doesn't care, but does care. 
It wants to comfort. It wants to help. It wants to be there. You say, I don't believe it. I don't feel that. Well, I'll give you a couple verses. Hebrews 2. Speaking of Jesus. In that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able also to succor. That word means comfort. He's also able to comfort them that are tempted. Couldn't get much plainer than that. He knows that it's scary to be human. He was. God became flesh and dwelt among us. He knows what it's like to go through that physical pain. He knows what it's like to go through that spiritual pain. The Bible says because of that, now he can comfort us. Hebrews 4, a couple chapters later, the Bible says, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. What's he saying? He said, look, we don't have this high priest, as Savior, that keeps us at arm's length and, and can't be touched by us. But no, here's who we do have. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. What's the author saying? He's saying that we have a God who knows what it's like, and he wants to help, and he wants to comfort, and he wants to be there. Secondly, God is not going to give you more than you can handle. 1 Corinthians is clear on this. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, speaking of physically and spiritually, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. What's that saying? Your God, who has, who has walked that scary road, who knows what it's like to be human, who can comfort and help and love on you, also will not give you more than you can handle. And beyond that, he'll deliver you from it. This is what Romans 11 says, where Jesus is referred to as the deliverer. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written. They shall come out of Zion, the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. In the Bible, Satan's known as the tempter. Jesus is known as the deliverer. So understand that your, your Savior is someone who loves you, who wants to be there, who wants to help you, who wants to comfort you through that trial and through that testing and through that temptation. And he won't give you more than you can handle. And at the end of the day, he wants to deliver you out of it. That is, that's the God that we pray to. That's who we serve. And as we internalize and let this kind of uh, ruminate in our hearts of, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Our, our prayer should be, God, don't expose me to, to that place of temptation where I'm going to be led astray by the power of Satan. Lord, protect me. Lord, be my shield. Lord, put a hedge around us. Lord, keep us from that. But Lord, get me out of this. Lord, deliver me from evil. I, I don't have the strength to contend with evil. Deliver me from it. Loose me from the chains of my sin. Protect me spiritually. Spare me from the battle as much as possible. Lord, I, I seek your protection from the wiles of Satan. That's, that's, that's the petition. That's what should be stamped in our prayer lives is, Lord, keep me, keep me out. Get me out. Lord, protect me physically, spiritually. I trust in you. Next week, we'll begin to unfold the very end of this prayer as it turns to kind of this high praise of, Lord, the, the kingdom and the power and the glory. It's all yours. It's all you. But this is the last petition, and we're instructed to pray this model of, Lord, keep me out, get me out, protect me physically, spiritually. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.